Michael, you've just spent a week at the happiest place on earth. And I must admit, I'm a little bit jealous. How For those happened? who may be confused about what the happiest place on earth is, it's Disney World. Uh, we, we, I was just there with my kids. First time for them. It was, it was a blast, Diane. I've, you know what? I came, I came away with a few takeaways, but one of them was the excellence at scale that Disney has. 74,000 employees in that park and like almost every single one of them, it's probably like 73,500 of them are just dedicated to making your experience better than the last person you just interacted with. And it's, it's, it's astounding. However, they have managed to do that. So it was a blast. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, but we're not here to talk about my vacation, uh, although that might be fun. <laughs> Instead, we're looking to continue to dive into some of these sticky questions around K-12 education, help people see different ways through what has often uh, been pitted as zero-sum battles between the adults in the room and, and try to think through how we can unleash uh, student progress, really, and prepare them for the world into which they're entering. And, and obviously a question that exploded into both of our minds starting last year, Diane, was the topic of AI. And as opposed to the metaverse, it is still the topic uh, du jour. Uh, it is still what everyone is wondering about, artificial intelligence, what do we do with it, and so forth. And you've been teasing me that you have the perfect guest to help us think about this in some novel ways. So take it, take it from here, Diane. Well, um, I have indeed been doing that. You're right. AI so far has a longer shelf life. Um, so we'll see how, how long that lasts. Um, it, it's it's it, my great pleasure to introduce you to Irham. Um, and um, Irham and I first met a few years ago when he was a freshman at Minerva University. Um, he was coming from Bangladesh to that global university. Um, he's now a senior. Uh, he spent the last two summers as an intern at Google X here, um, just about a mile away from where I live. And um, at Google X, he's really been focused on large language model, a aka AI research. Um, and and you've been hearing about Irham from me um, and all of our conversations we've been having for quite some time, Michael. So. Um, what you know is that I've learned a ton from him about AI. And, and one of the things I love about talking AI with Irham is that even though he has a ton of knowledge and, um, for example, he writes a popular technical blog about AI that I have looked at and I, I can't even decipher a, a sentence of it. So highly technical, deep knowledge. But he also um, is a systems thinker and he cares deeply about how um, technology is used, how AI is used, um, and what it means for our society. Um, and so he's willing to and and able to talk with people like me, lay people like me, and help me understand that and engage in a good conversation. And for our purposes, I think most importantly, your home is 20. And um, it's so critical to be in dialogue with people in this generation. I think we give a lot of lip service in education to, you know, more of the consumers, if you will, or the students, and then we don't involve them in our dialogue. And so I'm just really grateful um, that he's here and you all get to meet. And so welcome, Irham. Irham, it is so good to have you here. Um, I, I have, Diane has been teasing this for a while. So thank you for joining us. 
Before we dive into the AI topic itself, I, I would just love to hear through your words because I've heard it a little bit through Diane's, but but I'd love to hear it, and the audience would love to hear just your journey to Minerva University, your journey uh, to diving into topics of AI, and and really how has that school experience specifically been? Like what has worked, what hasn't? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm like so excited. Um, so yeah, let's just get into it. Um, I'm one of those people who the standard school system was just not designed for, rather frankly. Like, I grew up inside the national school system back in Bangladesh, up to 12th grade, essentially, and it just wasn't designed for someone like me in mind. Like, we're talking in like an institution where, like, what we're talking 50-person classrooms, teachers barely able to, like, give anyone attention, and, like, the school system is geared to, like, make you pass a university entrance exam and like if you do that you, you've done it like you've succeeded and i my mindset often was like i joked that like i was learning full-time and going to school on the side <laughs> so the way i saw it in my mind that's amazing <laughs> and i'd say the only reason my path worked out the way it did is because when i was in finishing up middle school entering high school so like eight to nine grades like that window like the internet just like rapidly proliferated across the entire country, like within a couple months, like a like short couple of months, essentially, like you went from like not a lot of people, you know, using the internet to a lot of people, you know, using the internet. And I was one of those people. And I was like, oh my God, like, like, it's not that I don't, it's not that I don't like math, it's that I don't understand it. And there, so there's a difference between those two things. And like, I was one of those people like Khan Academy was like what literally designed for like, I'd log on to that thing. And I was like, oh my God, I actually understand math. I mean, I can like teach myself math. I can like succeed at it. And that is the impression that it left me with is that like, technology is like really opened up, like the internet in particular is like one of those like frontier technologies that just opened up learning to anybody who could access it and like, go through the right set of tools needed to learn things like Khan Academy being one of them. And I guess that's the mindset I'm seeing this new generation of technologies in AI too. Like, I wonder who else is going to be using them the way I did and learn something new that their environment wouldn't otherwise allow them to. I suppose like I kept teaching myself things and like that's kind of, I guess, partly how I ended up at Minerva is because I wanted like a not traditional university, like university education because the traditional high school education clearly wasn't a fit for me at all. And Minerva was like, come here, like, we won't bore you with lectures. We in fact, our, prof like, our professors barely get to speak for more than five minutes in class. Like it's all the students just talking to each other and learning from each other. And I was like, sign me up. Well, and Irham, um, that curiosity, I think that you are describing in yourself um, is I think one of the, the things that led you to discover AI long before most of us discovered it. And you discovered it on the internet, you discovered it by reading papers and um, sort of following these blog posts while you were teaching yourself. And so um, I, I, I don't think it was a surprise for you when it burst onto the scene because you, you knew what was coming and where it was coming from. Um, and yet, um, I think that your the the, re, the world's reaction has been interesting. And so, you sent me a, a quote the other day. You texted me a quote about AI that had us both laughing pretty hysterically. Um, <laughs> 
probably because it feels very true. And so I'm going to share that quote, which is um, artificial intelligence is like teenage sex. Everyone talks about it. Nobody really knows how to do it. Everyone thinks everyone else is doing it. So everyone claims they are doing it. And (laughs) so let's, let's just start by figuring out, you know, what people are actually doing, if anything, Um, you know, can you just, this is sort of a ridiculous question, but can you just explain AI to us? Like, and, and why it's suddenly this big deal that it feels like it just spontaneously arrived in 2023? I guess there's like three big terms that we should go over when we say AI, because it just means so many things. Like AI is like such a big, hard thing to define, but I guess the way I see it is like, anything that's just right beyond the edge of what's computationally possible right now, because once it becomes possible, people kind of like stop thinking about it as AI. Like when you, ah, interesting. Okay. Other people would have their own definition, but I feel like that's like what's historically been true. Like once something becomes possible, it almost feels like it's no longer AI. Got it. What has been more recent though, is like how we keep pushing the frontier. Like if it was the nineties, for example, when like, like Kasparov like played with deep blue or like, the chess playing engine, like that thing was like a massive, highly sophisticated program with like millions of logical rules. That's, that's what's different. Like what happened over the last 10 years is like we really pivoted towards machine learning and specifically a branch of it called deep learning, which allowed us to use really simple algorithms, like on enormous amounts of data. Like we're talking several thousand lifetimes worth of data when, when you were talking about training a language model, for example, and ginormous amounts of compute to push all that data through a very simple algorithm. And that's what changed in that it turns out really simple algorithms work extremely well when you have a large enough compute budget and enough data to pass through them. And the instantiation that like everyone really captured the imagination is again a narrow part of machine learning still is called large language models. The large being like they're much larger than models were historically. Language models in the sense that at their core, you give them a piece of text and they just play a guessing game. We're like, okay, so what's the next word? And if you keep predicting the next word over and over, you form entire sentences, paragraphs, entire documents that way. So um, it sounds like basically... um, I'm going to bring it back to education really quickly, Michael, like AI, as you're describing it, Irham, is this concept we have in education and learning, it sounds like to me, which is like um, I plus one. So it's like where you are just a little bit harder yeah. than what you can do. And that's like your 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 zone of proximal development, yeah. like where you're best learning. So it sounds like AI is like in that space. Like it's like what we can do plus a little bit more is yeah. like what keeps pushing us forward. Um, basically on everything that's written on the internet mm-hmm. with, with simple mm-hmm. formulas. Yeah. And okay. I guess what captured the imagination is I think language in particular, because Chat GPT came out sometime last December, I think. And that, again, took everybody, like, by surprise, essentially. But the thing is, like, um, image generation models like DALI 2 and Stable Diffusion were out, like, earlier that summer. And, like, they're built on basically the same technology, given a ginormous amount of data, produce more samples that look like something that came from the data distribution. But, and I... 
I, I had this with friends, especially outside of computer science, where I show them these generated images and they're like, yeah, I thought computers could already do that. What's special about them? And I'm like, oh my God, it's like generating like a panda in like a spacesuit on Mars. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I thought Photoshop already does that. That's so interesting. <laughs> whereas, whereas with language, like language feels di- like language, I would almost say like people see a conversational interface and almost by de facto assign intelligent attributes to it. Now, this is not to say that it's all smoke and mirrors. Like these are remarkably practical technologies that I genuinely think are going to change a lot of what we do today, as we'll explain. But at their core, I think there's at least part of the fact that humans genuinely see language differently than other modalities, because in part, it is unique to us that we know of at least. Uh, It's really interesting though, because the implication of that, it seems, is that part of this isn't just the power of what's been built, but also our reaction to what's been built. Yeah. And I think then the corollary, something Diane and I have talked a lot about is like, right now you're seeing very polar opposite reactions to AI. Either it's the, the utopian <laughs> thing that's going to bring about this glorious future where resources are not scarce and everyone will be fine and like, et cetera, et cetera. Or it's very dystopian, right? And you see a lot of the... I'm going to insert my own belief for a moment here, but like a lot of the technology leaders that have developed this being like, it could be dystopian, it could take over the world. As I hear you describing it, it doesn't quite sound like either of those is right. It's like <laughs> the next step. So I, 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 I'd love you to put this in a human context then of like, what does it mean about the roles, particularly as we think about the future of work that humans will play with AI or you know, how human AI maybe is itself or isn't? Like, how how do you think about the intersection with humanity? Um, When I think about the future, one tool I borrow from a former colleague, um, Nick Foster, who was like head of, like, I think head of design at Google X. Um, Like he he had this, like he would introduce this concept of like thinking about the future as like not as a thing you're approaching, but like almost like a cone of many possible outcomes. There is the probable, which is like the current set of outcomes that seem like really probable, but the probable is not the possible. Like mm. the possible like set of features is much larger. And right now, I think we run a real risk of kind of just like not seeing the technology for what it is. It's a, it's a tool that we could actively shape into a future we want. And instead, it's like, instead of like trying to imagine it through that lens, we're almost like, we're kind of giving up and we're like, yeah, it's gonna take over the world or something. It's gonna be bad. Oh, well, like, it's almost like we're sleepwalking towards an outcome to a degree. Like, I see it genuinely as like a technology, a tool. And yeah, like it's up to us to decide what integration of that into our society looks like. But like, it's a tool. Do do you think part of that is because some of the people behind the coding are also surprised by the outcomes that it produces and like, gee, I didn't know it could do that. And so they're sort of showing to your point about this, like weird passivity that we all seem to be uh, uh, displaying that maybe it's because they too seem surprised by some of its capabilities. And so that is surprising the lay people like me and Diane and not to mention the people who aren't even playing with it yet. So I think it's important, like um, what we've seen over the last 10 years, but really the last four, I would say, with like scaling really taking off is when models get larger, 
they have more capabilities. Like a model from three years ago, no, I'd say a little bond enough, maybe four or five. If you go to the joke and ask it to explain it, it, would, it wouldn't be able to do that. It would like struggle. But like, if you ask ChatGPT now, like, hey, here's a, here's like a joke that my teenage son wrote. I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? It's going to do a pretty decent job at it. So one of the things that came with scale is like capabilities emerge. But the thing that surprises researchers is like, it's, um, I think I saw this analogy on a paper by Sam Bowman, but like, it's almost like buying a mystery box, I think. Like, you buy a larger box, there's going to be some kind of new capabilities in there, but we don't know what they're going to be until we open up that box. So I guess that's where a lot of surprise, even from researchers, come from. That's it. I will push back on that a little in that there has been really genuine and serious work done in the last two years where we're really trying to figure out, like, what data, like, what way we're like throwing the whole internet at this thing it's there's actually a lot of things going on in there and that these capabilities are not actually as surprising as we think they are like joke explanation i wanted at, at the start when it came out we're like oh my god this thing can explain jokes but then when you look dug into the data deep enough you're like there's like tons of websites on the internet that exist for you to like dump down a joke and explain how it works so it didn't appear out of completely nowhere the fact it works on new jokes that are hopefully original and it's still capable of explaining them it's still cool but it didn't come out of absolutely nowhere um Irham, you just started giving us some time frames and timelines and you're sort of in your mind calculating <laughs> 10 years four years two years i just want to note 10 years you were 10 years old but okay we'll, we'll set that aside for a moment um but, but as you were using those timelines, one of the things that comes up a lot for people is this feels like it's going so, so fast. Mm -hmm. Like if you didn't even understand what was happening in this world and then suddenly ChatGPT came on the scene, mm -hmm. you probably didn't look at it in December because you were busy. But then in the new year, suddenly you like the whole world's talking about yeah. ChatGPT and you log on and then it just seems like every day something new is coming and faster. And, and I talk to people who just are like, I, I can't keep up. <laughs> it's only been like a couple months and I don't even, it feels like it's just spinning so fast yeah. and beyond our control. Mm. How do you, is that true? Like how do you think about that timing and, um, how, how do you think about keeping up? Like what, how, how can we, Con like conceptualize that, especially well, as educators. Well, for what it's worth, even researchers have trouble keeping up these days with the sheer amount of papers coming out left, right, and center. It's it's hard. That's it. Like, at, and I'll say, like, it is genuinely surprising the pace ChatGPT in particular took off. Like, because these models had existed, like the model they're building off of GPT three that that had existed since twenty twenty. We're talking like the start, like around the pandemic start period, like. They just put a chat interface on top of it. And that like really seemed to take off. I remember reading news articles where even OpenAI seemed like surprised that just putting on a chat interface on top of a technology that had, had lying around for three years, like caused it to really take off that way. And even I was surprised because again, I was in Taipei in the spring and like Taiwan in the spring. And I remember being on like the Taiwan high-speed rail and I'm seeing someone else use chat GPT on the train next to me. And I was like, oh, wow, this thing is taking up a lot faster than I realized. Um, but it's important to like understand that when I say again, that three year, the GPT-3 had been lying around for three years before they put a chat interface on top of it. And this is not, again, this should not underscore the fact that like these models are going to get larger, probably more capable, 
but it should also like ground you two things in that one the specific burst of innovation we saw in this year in particular had been building up for a bit essentially like it's almost like a pressure valve went off when they put a chat interface on top of it the other thing and this is the thing that i wish people would discuss more often is that it's not just that the models got larger and we trained them on more of the internet it's also that we start paying a lot of money to get a lot of humans to label a lot of this data so that you could like fine tune what the behavior of these models are you see when gpt3 was trained about like yeah in the 20 like in around 2020 or so it's what we call a base model it it's it has it does exactly one thing you give it a piece of text and it produces a completion similar to the text data it saw when it was being trained which would be raw internet data and it has a tendency to go off the rails because the internet is full of people who say not very nice things to each other <laughs> um what changed was the sheer amount of human data collection that went in during that time frame and that this large model was adjusted over to like tame its behavior like teach its skills such as like what explaining a joke even is and all those things we could talk about that a bit more but the big connection being that the jump we saw in those 3 year like is that of a technology that had already existed that we really learned to like adjust better but we already burned through that innovation once like we like we like it like it's unlikely we're going to see like another leap on the same scale of like learning how to use like supervised like human fine tuning again because like that innovation has now already exists and is already baked into that's this. fascinating it's something i hadn't understood before either which is to say that uh, in, in essence if i understand you right uh, obviously the code base continues to evolve where you know gpt4 and so forth but in effect i think what you're saying is like the user interface and how we interact with it the right is what actually changed like the skin of how humans interact with the code base i think it leads us to where you know we we love to talk on this podcast which is the uses in education and how it's going to impact that and obviously i'll 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 give you the hall pass if you will you're not an educator um so you know i, I not, we're not asking you to uh, opine in in some way that puts you in a position you're not but but you are a student right now uh at mm-hmm. a student at a cutting edge university constantly thinking mm-hmm. about pedagogy and so i'm i'm curious from the student perspective what excites you at the moment about ai in education i think shrinking the learning feedback loop is the way i would put it i'm a systems thinker and like i use the lens of feedback loop a lot and whenever you shrink a feedback loop from say learning something like maybe getting a feed like what i say by feedback loop in education is like you write a paper your professor takes maybe two weeks to get it back to you and you got a, you get like almost like a signal like hey you got these things right you don't get these things quite right though what happens when you shrink that from two weeks to a couple minutes or maybe a couple seconds like that it's not just changing it's not just shrinking a number it's changing how you interact your like how your learning experience evolves and i think it's nice to connect this back to my middle school years i think like the reason i ended up in math and like like in math and programming in particular is because those two things have really short feedback loops in programming in particular if you write bad code your your like your compiler just screams that is like hey this thing isn't you're trying to add a number to like upset a word it's not it's not going to work yeah 
And you get like really short, tight feedback loops to keep trying your code over and over again until it succeeds. That's not true with learning English. With learning English, you write a paper, you wait a week for your prof- like your professor or teacher to grade it back to you. You maybe pick up something and like try again next time. And I would say at least part of the reason I ended up picking math and like math and programming is again, like I didn't have that much great resources in terms of like teaching, like teachers who could like really help me out. So I naturally gravitated towards things that like I would be able to like really quickly iterate on math and programming were those things. English, uh, even the sciences, even I would argue broadly are not on those same lines. Like, but what then changes with AI then is like, you now have a chatbot that or it doesn't have to be a chatbot. It could be far more than that, really. You just have a computational tool that can like actively critique your writing as you're writing it out. Like you're like, hey, like what are some ways I could have done this better? They're like, yeah, you're like using these passive, you're like, you're using these passive wordy phrases. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. And they're like, why shouldn't I be doing that? Because like, because it makes it harder for other people to read. And instead of waiting a week for that to happen, you get that feedback in real time and you have another iteration ready. And you then ask it again, hey, how could I do it even better? Like that loop shrinks significantly. That's fascinating. And I think it's um, also what we, Michael and I have been working on personalized learning or whatever you want to call it for a decade plus at this point. And that is certainly one of the promises of personalized learning is that tight, feedback loop. So you're staying in the learning, you know, learning isn't delayed and it's contextualized and it's in the moment and immediate, it's more tutor like, if you will, that's why so many people have put so much energy into that. And you have now said a couple of things. One, chat GPT putting this like um, skin on their product, which is essentially a chat bot. Like you talk with this bot or this whatever window and then also this potential of what you just described like the feedback coming from sort of a chat bot if you will mm-hmm. um and in my experience most people when they think about the uses of ai are thinking along these lines like that is what they think is there's going to be someone whether it's a little avatar or a box or something that's like sort of chatting with me and that's kind of how ai is going to play out i know that you sort of get a little exasperated when that's the you know all people can imagine mm-hmm. what else what else might be possible how, help us expand our thinking a little bit beyond just this sort of chatting I think right now we're at the phase when the iPhone would have been sometime in 2007. I'm not really qualified to comment on that because I would have been what? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But at least from my understanding of that time period, um, apps were a new thing. Like people didn't really know how to fully utilize them. And like the first set of apps were kind of like, we look at them and I was like, people were building those like a flashlight app where instead of turning on your phone's flashlight, it just showed a flashlight on the screen. <laughs> I downloaded one of those, so it's true. <laughs> so I feel like we're in that era for these language processing technologies right now in that we have a brand new tool. We're not entirely sure what using that looks like. And returning back to that quote, Diane quoted, um, with the enterprise, I feel like not nearly as many people are asking, how does this help us solve our problems better? And a lot more people are asking like, how do I put this into my product so my board of directors is happy? 
Yeah. So the idea being like, what legitimate problems do I have? And can I use this to solve yeah. them? And that's where the, yeah. what's a useful app, not the flashlight, <laughs> is going to come from. With chatbots in particular, chatbots became the first big use case. So everyone's like, well, this seems to work. Let's make my own chatbot, but like slightly different. And I think it's just so unimaginative. But the other thing with chatbots is that they have really bad, what we call affordances in design. And affordance is something that like almost like cues you into how to use something. Like when you see a handle on a door, you're like, oh, this is a thing I grab, right? Like, Dan, let me ask you, like, if you had to choose between a big cancel button that like cancels your flight that you don't want to go on versus dealing with a chatbot to cancel your flight, which one would you pick? Yes. And you have showed me this and demonstrated this to me, like a single button like that is so much more useful if you know the thing that I'm going to do versus making me talk to it and explain it where something's inevitably going to go wrong. Right. <laughs> I mean... May like I mean, again, these technologies are so nascent right now, and what people really need to appreciate is that you need to design them in ways where you almost expect they're going to produce some unrelated, unpleasant output somewhere along the process. So it's almost like a liability if you're giving like a user an open box to type anything they possibly want, and. It's not just a liability. It's also just makes the user like, it, like again, it doesn't give the user any affordances. They see a blank box. Like, again, if you need an English tutor bot, like, you could just as easily have, like, a couple buttons that, like, like that could summarize, like, like rewrite, like, re like remove jargon, like, sorry, highlight jargon, or, like, like, introduce a couple buttons that cover a couple use cases that, like, a standard 9th through 12th grader may want to use so that they can refine their writing better. Don't give them an open-ended box where they don't even know what to ask for help in. Uh -huh. And would that still be using AI, those buttons? I mean, behind the scenes, at the end of the day, any implementation of these things that you've looked at is a role-play engine. If you have interacted with one of these airline processing, like if they use a language, using large language model behind the scenes, there's only two, there's only two bits that anyone else modifies once you have the model, which is you have a dialogue preamble, which is like almost like a script someone else writes as like, you are now about to role play a dialogue, you are about to assist a user with cancel with, with like their airline queries. And then the actual dialogue that happens. All people do when they're creating a new implementation of them is that they switch out the preamble with something else. I'm just saying you can write so many different, you can write a preamble for each of those buttons, essentially. Like the, mm. if the button is like, hey, like you highlight jargon, then you're like, okay, you are about to role play a bot that takes in some English text and like returns the exact spans of text that are abnormally jargony for the writing of a 9 to 12 year, like 9 to 12 grader. You as the developer should be writing that script because you are the one who knows what this person needs to be using. You shouldn't leave it up to the user to be writing their own scripts, essentially, for the most part, unless it's like a very specific use case where you wouldn't want the user to be writing that. But don't treat it as the default one, which we for some reason do. So it's super interesting, the implications on education. And, and I, I have a couple takeaways here and, and I want to test them by you and then get your reaction. So the first one is on the flashlight app analogy. Um, I think the implication is that if the iPhone, or in this case, OpenAI, is ultimately going to very easily incorporate the thing that you've thought of in their own roadmap, 
your app is not your your sort of idea is not going to last very long on its own. Um, right? Like the the reason there were these apps was like there was not a button to do your own flashlight or change colors or things like that. And so they built these apps and then very quickly, you know, iPhone realizes, hey, we can just add a quick little button. Um but I think the second implication is as you start to think about the user experience and come up with these prompts that a user might want to go through so that they're not guessing what they're putting into that open-ended box, that like the opportunity for educators might be to start to build around these different use cases that if I'm understanding you correctly, perhaps OpenAI is not going to develop all these different use cases and so forth. But instead, the opportunity might be for educators to build on top of their existing, on top of their code, to develop these sorts of things that help get the problems solved that they and their students are actually trying to solve. It, it, but I'm curious, like, where that line ends and, and if you see it differently. I mean, it's not a clear hard line. I mean, it's... I mean, what's on OpenAI's roadmap? I mean, even I can't yeah. really, like, I don't know. But I guess it ties back into, like, what your company is. Like, if your company is, like, trying to add value to people's lives, like, that really means sitting down is like, oh, am I just going to write a wrapper that, like, takes in a PDF and, like, allows you to just chat with it? I mean, those all kind of, like, went the way of the dinosaurs last week when OpenAI just integrated, right. like, hey, you can drop a chat PDF into our thing. But if you really try to aim for deep integration, like, OpenAI has, I, I, I mean, I would, I'm making claims here, I don't know for sure, but, like, I would imagine they don't have a deep understanding of the K-12 education system, nor would they be necessarily interested in that, because that doesn't seem to be what their goal right now is, which is to make bigger and better version of these models that are more generally capable. What they're counting on is that other people take these models and like integrate them throughout the rest of the economy. And that's where other people come in and where, that's where K-12 educators come in because like they are the ones who have a better understanding of like what these buttons need to be, what what they want their students to be learning at the end of the day. Love it. Um, what's coming to me, Michael, is, you know, on our last episode, we talked with Todd Rose, who wrote The End of Average, that um, is, in my mind, the foundation of a lot of personalized learning. And one of, I think, the misconceptions people have are, are the swings. Education loves to swing the pendulum, you know, as we go from, like, totally teacher-directed, controlling every second of every bit of learning and we swing all the way over to like, basically go teach yourself. We're just going <laughs> to throw you out in the wild. And at some level, just throwing people into a chat bot of a large language model is throwing them into the wild. And so what I hear you saying, Irham, is we need the in-between. Like there's a real role for educators to narrow. It's not like the whole world. Yeah. We can, you know, personalization is there's two, three, four, five ways of doing something. And we can narrow down to that and create a much more personalized experience that is curated by expert educators. And we should be looking for that happy in between. I mean, again, like, it's been so fascinating seeing these chatbots interact with the education system and like, kind of wreak havoc, honestly, like to a degree where professors like taking stances on everything from like, we want, we should go back to making everyone write things by hand, by the way, please don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like they're an opportunity and 
it's a, and here's the thing, the, this factory model of the education system we have, where people just like go through it, do these problems, hopefully learn something by doing said problems. We don't need to know they're learning the thing. We just need to know that they're doing the thing. Exit and ta-da, they have like a high school diploma. Like that was going to come to an end because that's already been out. Like that's already pe- ill-preparing people for the jobs of today for a while now. These models, they're not bringing about something that wasn't going to happen. They've just sped it up, essentially. Like, because students already, again, ask why a student would actually go out of their way to, like, get an essay like, written by these things. Like, if they genuinely believed in their own education that, hey, if I do this thing, I'll learn something new and that will be helpful in the future, they probably wouldn't. So why do they feel disillusioned? Because they know deep inside that what they're learning in their high school is not going to actually prepare them for the world. And, like, you need to actually deal with that disillusionment. And on the counter, I think these models provide an excellent way to actually start tackling that disillusionment by ask, by, by educators seeing themselves almost as designers, as like what people need to be learning. I use the example of the door handle because it seems like a simple object. It really isn't. If you've ever been in a hotel with like a one of those weird, poorly designed shower knobs, you know how much bad design can mess up your day. And when good design works, it's almost invisible. Like you don't even notice a shower knob when it actually works. And I think that's what good educational software using these will almost look like. The students won't even realize how seamless it feels. Like they press a button that like tells them, hey, this is the jargon you're using. Here's why it's bad for you. Here's an explanation of how you could do it better this time. It should feel seamless and they should feel less disillusioned because they feel like, oh my God, I'm actually learning something here. So I want to stay just as we wrap up here and, and, and one last question before we go to our sort of bonus round, if you will, of, of stuff outside of education, um, which is uh, you, you just painted a good picture, I think, of how the education system has reacted in very nervous, let's call it, ways to this mm-hmm. advent of it because it is immediately sort of thrown into question so many of these tired practices that it holds on to. And I guess the corollary question I'm curious about, I've heard a lot of students, uh, let me, let me frame this a little bit more. I've heard a lot of students say, you know, professor X, like you're thinking a lot about what is the assignment and how am I going to catch you from cheating? But you're spending a lot less time thinking about what do I need to learn to be prepared for this world in which AI is going to be underpinning basically everything I could possibly go do in a career. And so I guess the question I'm curious from your perspective is, as you look at these traditional factory model education systems, what's something that they should start teaching students that they don't perhaps today? And what's something maybe that they should lose that they continue to hold on to? I mean, honestly, I don't want to sound like a shill for Minerva, but I am going to. I think freshman year, like, I had never written a full-length essay prior to freshman year in English. And I was like kind of really lost, honestly. (laughs) But one thing that really stood out is like my professor spent so much time like just breaking down the act of writing into like, what does it mean like to have a thesis? What does it mean for a thesis to be arguable and substantive instead of something everybody universally agrees with? Because if everybody agrees with what you're writing, you don't need to write it. (laughs) Like really breaking down the act of writing into these atomic skills that like I keep finding myself using even at the tail end of college now in senior year. I think 
that is the kind of thing we're going to need to do. It's like actually asking ourselves, like, this is an instrument, a tool we've built that we administer to our students in the hopes that they'll learn something. Aren't they, it, it, does this tool actually does the, do the thing it advertises it does? Because a lot of the time, it just doesn't. And we just kind of need to be honest about that because otherwise, because, yeah, because like we've been like, again, like it's, it's a lot like, again, the chat GPT moment in some sense, but also for education, it's been building up like a pressure valve and that pressure valve kind of just went off in the last year. Wow. Well, we could talk for a long time, but that <laughs> might be the place to land it today. Um but before we let you go, we always like to, at the end, just mine for for um, what we're reading, watching, listening to um, outside of our day-to-day work. And so we're curious. Do you have any time what, what's for that as a for? student also? <laughs> Can I talk about a video? Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I've been playing a lot of Super Mario Wonder, which is like the new Mario Brothers game from Nintendo. Like, it's like... I, I, it is fun. Like, I, it is really the best way to describe it. Like, a lot of media, like, really, like, enjoys, like, you know, being dark and gritty and mature or, or, or whatever. Nintendo's like, we're going to make a game that's, like, unashamedly fun and bright and colorful and just, just, like, playful. And, like, they've been doing that for the better part of, like, I don't even know, like, 30, 40 years now. And they've kind of just like stuck to it as a core principle. And like, I kind of just admire like their ability to like really set a mission for themselves, which is make things that make people like joyful and fun and actually just stick to it for like the better part of a half century. Oh, I love that one. Okay. Diane, what about you? Um, well, we're going to look kind of boring following that one. I'm, I'm going to go to the dark, gritty world. I just, I just finished reading um, the book, How Civil Wars Starts and how to stop them by Barbara F. Walter. I will just say um, seven of the eight chapters do an excellent job of um, diagnosing the problem and it's pretty terrifying. And I do think we should know it. Chapter eight where the solutions come in was not compelling to me. Um, And so it feels like there's work for us to do. And I guess I will say I'm in a similarly dark place maybe, Diane, because I read The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Uh, So... (laughs) Go figure. Everyone can figure out where Not everyone can figure out where our headspace is. But uh, <laughs> I finished it before Disney. I had tried to read it a couple times before, and this time I made it through, uh, which is setting me up now for reading Klausowitz, uh, which is where I am now. Uh, grinding through is the right verb, I think. But on that note, Irham, thank you so much for joining us and making what's a. Uh, fraught topic but a topic with a lot of hyperventilation thanks for making it really accessible and exciting and uh giving us a window into where this could be going really really appreciate you being here with us on class disrupted and for all of those listening thank you so much for joining us we'll see you next time Mm -hmm.